0: Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Science's Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more of those, point your browser to bioscience.oxfordjournals.org. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Ted Kennedy, who's a research ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey's Grand Canyon Monitoring and Research Center. He's here to talk to us about the way that hydroelectric power plants and a practice called hydropeaking can affect insect abundance and food webs downriver of dams. And we also got a chance to talk about the ways in which science might even help alleviate some of these effects. So let's get straight to the interview. Dr. Kennedy, thank you very much for joining me today. Uh, it's my pleasure. So we're going to be talking a lot about uh, hydropeaking today. So I wanted to get a rough idea of what that concept is. Um, I think, you know, that's a, a good baseline for our listeners. Um, what right. is hydropeaking and, and why is it done?
1: Right. So um, hydropeaking is the practice of um, bringing uh, discharge levels in, in hydroelectric dams up and down over the course of a day um, and, um the reason uh, this happens is because, um, in you know, the, in the electrical grid, basically it's impossible to store large amounts of energy, and so in the you know in the morning when people wake up, um, somewhere within the grid, uh, an increase in electrical output has to occur, and so hydropower, you know, dams uh, basically they can open up. You know the um, the penstocks, the the gates <clears throat> that allow water to flow through the dam, uh, and and within seconds they can increase the output of um, electricity from the dam. But it it's really you know it's a function of of society's needs for for electricity. You know, so it it um, yeah.
0: So you mentioned the artificial tides that this creates. Uh, could you describe that a little bit? What's happening downstream of the dam um, when hydropeaking is practiced?
1: Right. So yeah, what happens is. Um, you know, in Glen Canyon, at least uh, the discharge can vary by, um, you know, up to up to 50 percent within a day. So over the course of hours, the discharge of the Colorado River um, goes up by 50 percent or more. And and what ends up happening is is you you get these artificial tides. So these um, basically this up and down in the river levels at the dam leads to waves. Uh, that propagate downstream. And in Grand Canyon, they, you know, we think they propagate uh, probably farther than they do in most systems because uh, we have, you know, canyon-bound river. Uh, we don't have any really big tributaries to come in and, and sort of buffer and and ameliorate these waves. So when ends up, what ends up happening is you, know, you get tides um, at all points downstream of the dam, and uh, the timing of those tides ends up varying Uh, you know, depending on how far you are downstream.
0: Okay. And then, you know, since this is a biology-based podcast, I'm assuming that this has uh, something to do with, uh, or some effect, rather, on um, the biology of the river. What species does this have the greatest effect on?
1: Yeah. So um, what we're we're finding is that, um, you know, that uh, these tides seem to be creating a life history bottleneck for, for aquatic insects in particular um there's been a lot of studies that have looked at <clears throat> how these tides might strand uh juvenile fishes um how they you know they uh they algae and and other types of uh you know macrophytes uh, have a hard time uh being in this intertidal zone you know tides are obviously a, a natural part of of ocean settings you know and 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 those organisms evolved with these tides and and adapted in response. Uh, but in rivers, it's 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 a phenom- phenomenon that's you know totally unnatural. And um, what we're finding is that it is, it seems to these tides seem to really affect negatively affect aquatic insects. Aquatic insects are a really important prey item for for lots of fishes. They're they're kind of the cornerstone of river food webs and. And so these tides seem to really, um, they, they just make it so that many species of aquatic insects simply can't exist.
0: Okay, and you mentioned um, a life history bottleneck. At what stage of their life history are they hitting that bottleneck?
1: Yeah, it seems to be right at the, at the start of the whole life cycle. So aquatic insects have uh, complex life cycles, uh, you know, where the, the larvae, the egg, larvae, and pupae are, are, are aquatic. <laughs> And and in the river, and then the the adults emerge from the river uh, as winged uh, terrestrial insects, and uh, mate, and then and quickly uh, lay eggs back in the river. And um, it it turns out that many aquatic insects, uh, almost eighty percent, have egg laying behaviors that are predicated on on river edge habitats. Uh, so these these sort of shallow places along river margins. And so when you interpose or impose this artificial intertidal zone, we're finding that um, you know many aquatic insects, um, are the eggs are just getting desiccated and um, leading to mortality. And basically yeah, a life history bottleneck where they, they just can't get past that first life history stage, the egg stage.
0: Okay, so what they're relying on is they're essentially requiring very shallow water to lay their eggs in.
1: That's what it. That's yeah. Um, or I guess um, the you know the majority of aquatic insects, nearly eighty percent, have uh, egg-laying behaviors uh, that are known as cementing, where they're they're um, you know they're crawling underwater and and cementing their eggs onto rocks or vegetation, uh, logs, things like that. And um, you know, in in it, generally, that would require you know, somewhat shallow water. Essentially, um, there there are some species of insects that can um, sort of crawl, you know, great distances underwater, um, a meter or two. Um, but but most of them, we think, um, you know, are are re- reliant on sort of shallow, quiet water habitat, and um, and that just doesn't exist, or or it does exist in in these hydropeaking rivers, but you know the, these insects they're kind of hardwired to emerge and lay eggs in the, in the late afternoon evening time frame and you know they're they're laying eggs uh they have this biological imperative to lay eggs um and and they don't realize right that uh, the water levels in this river are going to drop out uh, by a meter in in just a couple of hours you know uh leaving leaving eggs high and dry
0: Okay, so essentially what's happening is these insects are the terrestrial adults. They need to be able to crawl into the water a little way uh, to to lay their eggs and cement them to to some solid surface. Exactly. And and they're laying their eggs instead under these peaking circumstances at peak flow levels or near peak flow levels um, in the late evening or afternoon?
1: Yep. Yep. And and, and then, um, right, the tides go out and, and those eggs are left high and dry. And, and uh, we are, you know, our team did some studies looking at the effects of, of brief desiccation on egg survival. And we found that basically anything over an hour, uh, if eggs are exposed to air for an hour or more, uh, you have almost complete mortality of those eggs. And
0: so instead of that, you're looking at overnight here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, 12 hours and, um, you know, the, the, the experiments that we did, uh, looking at desiccation, uh, th- that was one, that simulated one cycle. Um, you know, insect eggs typically take days to weeks to hatch into larvae. And so, you know, um, uh, in, in a, in a natural setting eggs would be exposed to multiple drying cycles before they hatched. So the, the, mortality estimates that we present in our paper, those, those should be viewed as conservative estimates that, uh, you know, in natural settings, we might expect actually much higher rates of mortality than we observed with just one simulated hydrobeaking cycle.
0: And what was that mortality rate
1: like? Uh, basically 99%. The, 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 the values were indistinguishable from zero statistically. You couldn't tell them apart from zero. So basically complete mortality.
0: So you've got complete mortality, and that's the conservative estimate
1: yeah exactly yep
0: and then I guess the next logical question is uh what effect do we see on the ecosystem from the loss of these insects? I'm assuming that this has a wider effect
1: well we've we've actually shown um uh, so, some of the negative effects of of you know uh low-diversity invertebrate assemblages in, in Grand Canyon, and that's what really motivated our study. Um, so, what, you know, uh, <clears throat> aquatic insects tend to be really key prey items for fishes, for uh, birds and bats. Um, they they have this biological imperative to drift. Uh, drift is this term for, you know, when an insect enters the water column and is being transported downstream by the currents. Insects um you know have this imperative to drift at, at least a couple life stages after they hatch out of the egg stage. Um they're dispersing away from sort of their, their siblings. Um and and so that's one, one point where they they intentionally drift and then another stage where they have to drift is is often at the emergent stage. So, you know, a pupil insect uh, has transformed into a, an adult. Uh, that adult needs to, uh, get out of the water column and, uh, f- you know, fly away essentially. And so, uh, you know, because of this imperative to drift at, at two different life stages, aquatic insects end up being, uh, really key prey items for fish. When they're drifting, that makes them more vulnerable to fish predation. And so, in our Grand Canyon food web studies, we found that. Um, aquatic, you know, the, we we only have two kinds of aquatic insects uh, that are really common in Grand Canyon: uh, midges and black flies. Uh-huh. And it turned out that these uh, these two types of insects were really key prey items for native fishes throughout Grand Canyon. Um, so the the production of these insects was fairly low. the The amount of biomass being produced per year was fairly low, but the fishes, uh, things like endangered humpback chub and flannel mouse sucker they were relying heavily on these two types of aquatic insects and um and and we actually found evidence that the the fish populations themselves are are limited by the availability of uh aquatic insect uh biomass essentially so uh, does that make sense? it does yeah, so upstream yeah.
0: upstream you're extirpating the insects with the uh with the high flows and then subsequent r- river level drops and downstream, you don't have the insect biomass um, that the fish need to yeah. prosper,
1: yeah, pretty much that um yeah basically the 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 fishes are there the the amount of fish biomass seems to be constrained by the amount of insect biomass and and you know the the bioscience paper demonstrates that both the um you know the the abundance of of things like midges which we have in grand canyon that that is constrained by uh these hydropeaking waves and then also there's a whole host of species that are gone from grand canyon that don't exist there anymore uh, because they have egg laying strategies that are particularly sensitive to hydropeaking waves so essentially um you know, getting back to your question, um, you know, what what effects might we expect in food webs? Uh, what we showed in Grand Canyon is that you know, because hydropeaking is constraining, uh, it's creating this life history bottleneck for insects at the at this egg stage. That uh, you know, the fishes themselves that are feeding on insects, that they're, they're limited by the amount of insect biomass.
0: Okay. And Before we move into, um, I want to talk a lot about the, the citizen science element of this. Right. Um, but before we get into that, I was hoping just to give an idea of the scope of the study area. You know, we're not talking about um, these effects occurring just beneath the dam. This is something that right. propagates throughout a long distance. You know, how, how many
1: miles of river are we talking right. about? Um, yeah, we're talking about 270 miles. Uh, basically, we you see uh, hourly changes in the height of the Colorado River of uh, around three feet all the way down to where the, the river is entering the next reservoir, Lake Mead, which is formed by Hoover Dam. So, huge 270-mile uh, stretch of river. Uh, we see these hydro-peaking waves, and we see... Evidence that those waves, those the, that artificial intertidal zone is constraining aquatic insects uh, throughout that entire reach.
0: Okay, and I, w- I was hoping to talk then again, as I mentioned, about the citizen science element of this. Um, right. What what made this area particularly useful or good candidate for being studied in that way?
1: Right. Well, yeah. So we uh, it was it was really motivated by our earlier food web studies that I was talking about, where we have um, you know we have uh some really um you know precious uh populations of, of native fish in Grand Canyon. Uh Colorado River native fishes are are not doing very well. And um but in Grand Canyon that we have four species of, of native Colorado r- River fish and, and those food web studies showed that you know these these fish populations were being limited by invertebrate production and so we we started asking ourselves, well, why why is invertebrate production so low? Why are are there so few species of aquatic insects there? And um, I realized, you know, to really get at that question, that we were going to need to start studying other life stages of aquatic insects. Uh, You know, the food web studies that we had done and and really all the prior uh, aquatic ecology investigations in Grand Canyon had looked at the, the larval life stage of insects so that that riverine life stage and you know it 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 hit me uh, when I'm when I'm asking myself why you know why why don't we have mayflies in grand canyon that we really need to look at the entire life cycle of an insect in the context of this um you know this this highly altered river to to p- potentially answer that question and so um i was um you know the the available tools for for studying adult life stages of aquatic insects, the adult the available sort of methods and and protocols, they just weren't going to work in a place like Grand Canyon, where um, it's just really hard to get to. Right, the, it, there's only road access at the the top near the dam, and then down at the very bottom end where where you have Lake Mead. So, you know, if you want to collect samples, you need to do a river trip through Grand Canyon, that takes about two weeks and they, they, they cost a lot of money or you can hike in at various places. And so you can see with those sort of constraints that you know the amount of data that you could get uh, using traditional methods for, for sampling adult insects is going to be really limited. And basically, yeah, just in a I, I was out taking a hike trying to wrestle with this problem. How are we going to study adult insects? when we 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 can't really get down there very often and it hit me that you know there's a whole um there's there's lots of people that are down there all the time river guides private boaters and if we could just come up with a a simple uh, repeatable sampling approach uh we might be able to get a lot of data from this really remote ecosystem by collaborating with uh these citizen scientists so um, that's, 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 that was the sort of the, the thought process there.
0: That makes sense. So, I mean, th- there's really no way to get to that river except for a long hike. There's not, you can't even take a four by four down there.
1: Nope. Yeah, absolutely not. And, um, it, uh, the, the river trips, uh, you know, that's one way to, to obviously get down there, but, uh, you know, those, those trips cost a lot of money and, um, aquatic insects, uh, the adult life stages, these emergent insects, they're famous for being really temporally variable, you know, where you have these hatches, right? And they just, they go off at, um, you know, at, at various times. And so it's it's hard to predict. It, it would be hard to sort of plan river trips, you know, enough river trips to catch all of these potential emergent uh, insect hatches, essentially.
0: So the approach then is to design this protocol that can be carried out by um, right. citizen scientists, amateur scientists. Um and and what was that protocol like?
1: What what were they doing? Yeah, basically, you know, each night in camp, um, you know, we, I having done um I I I've, I've done uh 15 to 20 river trips myself, and I kind of had a feel for for how those things go and um, you know, uh, folks are camping at at different places every night, you know? And and you know, over the course of 2 weeks, they're they're making that 270 mile journey, but it Um. Basically, we you know we just said uh, wherever you're camped doesn't matter where you're camped. um, Just put out this simple light trap each night. Uh, We gave them a table of sunrise and sets. uh, Sorry, of sunset times, and they were instructed to put the trap out within an hour after sunset, nautical sunset, and then to leave the trap out for one hour. And, and to put the trap uh, near the river's edge, essentially.
0: Okay. And how many samples did you collect, roughly?
1: Uh, with with the help of these uh, dedicated uh, professional river guides and private boaters and education groups, we got over 2,500 samples in just three years. So it's, I believe, the the largest data set of aquatic adult aquatic insects ever ever collected.
0: That's enormous. And you're able to use um, a large number of these samples. You know, you you're getting reasonably good data
1: we're we're getting great data yeah it um the uh you know the the yeah we have some figures in in the paper that that depict the data and uh whenever i show uh these slides at meetings um i i, I i've i've heard the audience audibly gasp when they see the scope of the data and also uh the patterns that are emerging um from these data
0: so what are they telling you? Uh, what sort of trends are you seeing from this data? Do they, do they match the uh, predictions
1: from your lab work? Right, so the, yeah, the uh, what the data are showing is that um, the timing of these tides as you move through Grand Canyon, that that is uh, constraining aquatic insect uh, production. And moving from that very wide scope to an even wider
0: one, uh, these results are generalizable, aren't they? You see this result everywhere, right?
1: We do, yeah, we, we see the same thing elsewhere. Um and uh you know we are interested in in looking at other rivers now in other regions um you know uh throughout the US and even throughout the world, um to see um you know, to further test the hypothesis. Um and you know one thing that's that's really exciting too is it, it um uh in in Glen Canyon, uh at Glen Canyon Dam there's an adaptive management program. Uh, you know where they're striving to um, basically, um, you know, try and um, uh, see see if they can improve resource condition in Grand Canyon by by making subtle tweaks to how uh, the dam is operated. And so we have we we've, we've shared the results of our bioscience paper with the adaptive management program at Glen Canyon Dam, and they seem very receptive and interested in trying to mitigate uh, you know these negative effects of hydropeaking on insect assemblages, and so it it may be in in a couple years' time uh, that that they'll be doing experiments, flow experiments, to try and mitigate those effects, so that'll be another sort of test of the hypothesis, um, like we were talking about.
0: And And you know you've anticipated my next question, which is always that you know we identify a difficult problem and then uh, wonder about how to fix it um, right so what I mean obviously it would be wildly speculative at this point, but what sorts of flow changes could be conceived that might have the sort of positive effects on um you know these insect assemblages is there Is there anything that you have in mind right now
1: yeah. Well, yeah. The the one that we've actually proposed and that's being considered as as part of the ongoing environmental impact statement for, for Glen Canyon is, you know, so this life history bottleneck that we identified, uh, it's occurring at the egg stage. Aquatic insects can be really fecund uh, and really prolific with an indiv- individual female laying, you know, hundreds to thousands of eggs. So um, you know what? What we think is going on now in Grand Canyon and other hydropeaking rivers is, you know, this hydropeaking occurs almost every day of the year, and so you have you know 99% mortality of insect eggs that are laid along river edges. Um, you don't to, to mitigate that. You don't actually need to create ideal egg laying conditions throughout the year. Uh, again, these these insects can be really prolific. Uh, it might be you just need to create ideal egg laying conditions uh, periodically throughout the the emergent adult insect season and so what we proposed is essentially having stable and low flows uh every weekend from May through August um on the weekends uh the, this hydropeaking is not as uh valuable uh, essentially because on weekends right you don't have factories and office buildings powering up and turning on AC and so the changes in electricity demand uh, on the weekend days are are not as great, and so hydropower uh, revenues tend to not not to not to be as great either. And so, you know, if you were to do these stable low flows on weekends, where where you would not have an artificial tide on these weekends, you could uh, create these ideal egg laying conditions that the aquatic insects need, and uh, you could also Minimally, potentially minimally affect uh, hydropower uh, revenues and and you know the important service that that hydropower provides to society.
0: Right, and the insects are in that um, egg stage for a brief enough period of time that even just doing it for a day or two um, w- could potentially allow many of them to um, reach adulthood. Uh,
1: potentially, that we don't actually think that uh, it, it's probably going to take longer than a weekend for the eggs to hatch. Uh, but 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 you know uh, you can imagine these tides where you have a high and a low tide um, during the weekdays. On the weekends, what we've proposed is that you would have the flow level at the low tide level, and so any eggs any eggs that were laid on the weekends would remain wetted and would never be exposed to desiccation, um, and and they would give them the days to weeks that they need to hatch, essentially
0: got it. And one question I often ask is what I think of as the climate change question, which is there are obviously human effects in the river beyond simply those related to hydro peaking. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of those other stressors and the way they might interact with what we've talked about already.
1: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, um, the big one that we may see is, uh, you know, the Lake Powell Reservoir, the reservoir upstream of Glen Canyon Dam, Uh, you know, climate change uh, is predicted to uh, lead to a hotter drier climate here in in the western u s um, you know there's there's in you know you look across the globe and there tends to be disagreement among these climate models you know some for certain regions uh it's it 's hard to get the precipitation pattern right and 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 uh, different climate models predict different changes in precipitation for different regions but in the in the western u s where we 're working Basically, every single climate model uh, predicts hotter and drier. Got it. And yeah, and so what we, uh, you know, what what we're expecting to see is that over the coming decades, that the the levels in Lake Powell reservoir may get lower. Uh, we've, you know, there's been a lot of uh, newspaper articles about how low uh, water levels are in Lake Mead and Lake Powell, and we think that's probably the new normal. Uh, and so. You know, what that's going to do to Grand Canyon is, um, you know, where the dam withdraws water from the reservoir, it's deep within the reservoir. Yeah. And so the water tends to be uh, cold uh, throughout the year. And what we've seen in recent years as as Lake Powell Reservoir gets lower is that the water temperatures have actually warmed a bit. And um, and so, the, the you know, the main climate change effect that we – we may see in Grand Canyon is is essentially um, thermal regimes, temperature regimes that that um, start getting warmer um, and and actually more similar to the the undammed river. Uh, the the thing is though the 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 reason why I think it's important to try and um, get healthier insect assemblages in Grand Canyon is that that temperature change, even though it's uh, you know it's going to be maybe more More like natural conditions. That's going to be a a big change, a big environmental change, right? Yeah. When you know, right? In in the in the first three or four decades of of uh, Glen Canyon Dam's existence, uh, the water temperatures coming out of the dam have been pretty steady uh, at eight to 11 centigrade, and and so in the last decade we've actually seen. Temperatures, release temperatures of, of 16 degrees centigrade. That's a that's a pretty big change in river temperatures, and so that stressor of of, all, of new novel temperatures, um, you know, uh, c- could really affect food webs. And I think you know it's important to have resilient food webs, food webs that are are stable, and and so if, you know if we can work on sort of restoring invertebrate assemblages. And, and getting a healthier river, it might mean that, you know, in the face of climate change, uh, that that we have a more resilient ecosystem, essentially.
0: Okay, and my last question is always the same one, which is, are there any things that you thought we'd talk
1: about today that we haven't? Uh, what have we missed? Um, I guess one thing I haven't uh, sort of t- t- talked about is is how important, you know, that aquatic insects... um that they're, they're important, uh, for, for river food webs, like we've been talking about, you know, they support fish populations, but then when they emerge as winged adults, they're also, um, they're, they're key paradigms for things like birds, bats, and spiders. And so if we can get, you know, healthier, more diverse, uh, insect assemblages in the Colorado river, uh, you know, we, we, we expect to see, uh, larger healthier fish populations but we might also expect to see healthier riparian food webs where we have more uh species and more uh numbers of birds and bats and 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 you know other sort of terrestrial wildlife that that are reliant on on these aquatic insects during the adult life stages so you know we if, if we can if we can, uh, yeah, improve the health of these insect assemblages, it could have really far-reaching effects. You know, beyond the river uh, into the terrestrial environment.
0: And that seems like a great note to leave it on. Dr.
1: Kennedy, thank you very much for joining me today. Hey, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity.